And now please stand for the reading of God's word from Leviticus chapter 12 as we continue in our series through the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 12, we'll be covering the whole chapter. But before I read it, let us go to the Lord asking his blessing, asking for his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. O Lord, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth, for we know that scripture is able to make us wise to salvation, because all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so may your word now be efficacious to us by the spirit for such ends. For it is your spirit who opens eyes and convicts hearts and sanctifies us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now Leviticus chapter 12, this is God's holy word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is perfect and was given for your edification. Do give it your full attention. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. We return this morning to the clean and unclean laws in Leviticus. This morning we look at the uncleanness associated with childbirth. But before we look at the specifics, let me remind you of why Moses inserted the clean and unclean laws at this point in the book. In chapter 10... If you remember, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead as fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them because they had defiled the tabernacle and profaned the holy worship of God. And so the deaths of Nadab and Abihu revealed that defiling the holy dwelling place of God would result in death. 
And so it's very important that God reveal to them all the uncleannesses that would defile his holy dwelling place. He is holy. And the place where he dwells must be holy. That is, it must be set apart by the people. And so in chapter 10, in that same chapter, and in verse 10, just after the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, the Lord told Aaron, the high priest, that he is to teach the people to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Those distinctions were extremely important. The tabernacle, for example, was the holy realm. And it was to be distinguished from the common realm, which was everything outside of the tabernacle precincts. Now, the distinction between the unclean and the clean was related to the distinction between the holy and the common. Because nothing unclean should ever enter into that holy realm. That would defile the holy realm, the tabernacle. And death would result. Thus in chapters 11 through 15 we have the clean and unclean laws. Just after chapter 10, the Lord provides us with the clean and unclean laws. Now, in the last sermon, we looked at the clean and unclean animals. And this morning, we look at the uncleanness associated with childbirth. Now, there might be some confusion about this law. Because we might wonder why anything as amazing as childbirth would ever be considered unclean. And to add to this confusion, didn't the Lord command mankind to be fruitful and to multiply, filling the earth? And so why would a command of God given to all of mankind result in uncleanness? Well, first, let me make clear that sexual relations within the context of a marital union was not considered sinful. And neither was childbirth. They are commands of God given to man from the beginning and thus are very good. What we need to realize is that the unclean laws were not sins in themselves. For example, there was nothing sinful about eating pork in and of itself. Or touching a dead thing in and of itself. If it were, then Jesus would have sinned when he touched Jairus' dead daughter. And of course, he never sinned. Also, we today would still need to follow the kosher diet if they were sins in themselves. But we recognize that they are not. And so in the case of chapter 12, we want to recognize that neither was childbirth itself Something sinful. But although the unclean laws were not sinful in and of themselves, they were meant to teach Israel two key things about sin. And those two things were, we'll look at this morning, are the effects of sin 
and the contagion of sin. And we'll pick back up on these later in the sermon, and so take note of them, the effects of sin and the contagion of sin. Okay, so as we turn to the details of our passage, let me begin by giving a summary statement of this passage. If I could summarize this passage, it would go this way. The flow of blood after the birth of a child made a woman unclean, which prevented her from entering the holy place until her time of purification had ended and her animal sacrifice had been offered. She could not draw near until the time of her purification had been complete. And so this text begins with the Lord instructing Israel that a woman, when she bears a male child, that she shall be unclean for seven days, just as at the time of her menstruation. Now, both male and female discharges will appear in the coming chapters. It's a wonderful topic. For us all, I know, but it is holy scripture and therefore very important. And so we will address it. But here in this chapter, we see that it is the woman that is unclean and not the child who is born. And we also see that she is unclean because of the continual flow of blood that comes after the birth. Now, there was an interruption in her uncleanness on the eighth day after giving birth to a son, which allowed her and her husband to fulfill the command to circumcise the child. That was given the Abrahamic covenant and must continue. And so it helps us to to see how that can be fulfilled so that on the eighth day, there would be a break in her Uncleanness in order for her and her husband to bring the child to the tabernacle later on the temple and to have the child circumcised. But then she must continue in the blood of her purifying for 33 days. And so there's a total of 40 days that she cannot draw near to the tabernacle. Now, if it was a female child, then she was unclean for two weeks and then must continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days, a total of 80 days that she cannot draw near to the tabernacle. Now, why is the time doubled if she gives birth to a girl? Well, to be honest, we simply don't know the answer to that question. Some scholars have suggested that in the ancient world, it was believed that the flow of blood lasted longer with the birth of a girl. And so perhaps God used this law or gave this law in accordance with what their beliefs were, what they understood to be true. Other scholars have suggested that it might be because of the fact that a female child would be the future subject of blood flow. And so this accounted for the extended time. Perhaps it was one of those, perhaps something else. The truth is, is we don't know for sure. But what I can tell you is that it didn't have anything to do with girls being seen as less than boys in any way. Men have unclean laws related to their own discharges, as we will 
soon see. And so the law didn't show any partiality towards one sex or the other, though it did specify distinctions between them. But the real question is, why did the continual flow of blood after childbirth constitute the woman unclean? And we really answered that question in the previous sermon when dealing with the clean and unclean animals. Actually, there's kind of an existing principle that runs throughout the clean and unclean laws, which, as I mentioned, we discussed in the previous chapter. If you remember what largely set the clean animals apart from the unclean animals was the concept of life, wellness, and wholeness over against death, chaos, and that which is less than whole. The unclean animals were either associated with death by eating the dead carcasses of other animals, or with being less than whole, such as as fish that uh, lack scales or fins, could be seen as, as being less than the typical type of fish that had scales and fins. Okay, so here in chapter 12, we see that the flow of blood resembles the loss of life. Leviticus 17, verse 11, for example, says that the life of the flesh, in other words, the the life of a thing, is in the blood. And so the loss of blood indicates a loss of life. The loss of blood leads to death. Therefore, as one commentator put it, it would be inappropriate for the symbol of death, in this case, the mother's postnatal blood, to be present in the sanctuary where God resided. End quote. So you see, beloved, the clean and unclean laws taught Israel that life in the common realm, that is, life outside of the tabernacle area, is imperfect. It is subject to sin and death. But God, who dwells in the holy realm of the tabernacle, he is perfect. And so it must be perfect there within the precincts of the tabernacle. He is the source and fountain of the fullness of life. And anything that smacks of imperfection, whether sin and its wages, namely death, or anything at all that lacks wholeness or displays Disorder cannot approach God in the holy realm of the tabernacle. The flow of blood after childbirth then was a living illustration of this principle. And it was teaching Israel about heaven. Heaven itself is the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle was merely a copy of that which is in heaven. The heavenly tabernacle is the true holy realm, not the copy. And earth is the common realm. Here on earth we find sin, death, disorder, and all that lacks wholeness. You see, these things are the effects 
of sin. I mentioned we would speak about the effects of sin and the contagion of sin. These things are the effects of sin. Death, disorder, chaos, that which lacks wholeness, come about as the result or the effect of sin. But the effects of sin will not be present in the new heavens and the new earth. The Apostle John described the new heavens and new earth in Revelation chapter 21. And he said, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then only a few verses later, down in verse 27, he says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, no death, nor crying, nor mourning will be in heaven. Why? Because nothing unclean, nothing imperfect, nothing lacking wholeness will ever enter it. Because all will be made whole and perfect and complete. Because all who do enter it will draw near to him who is the source of all blessedness. Goodness and holiness. Who is the fountain of all blessing and the fullness of life. And so who will ascend to this heavenly tabernacle to draw near to God? Only those who are found in the Lamb's book of life. Meaning those whose sins are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. For by His wounds, you are healed. And isn't that what Leviticus 12 was teaching Israel by way of type and shadow? Think about it. When the days of her purification were completed... The woman drew near to the tabernacle with a lamb to be sacrificed. Trusting in faith that what once prevented her from drawing near had now been made right by the blood of a sacrifice. So that she could once again approach the living God at his holy dwelling place. Now, there were actually two sacrifices that our passage speaks of that were to be made by the woman. There was the burnt offering, which was to be a lamb, though if she couldn't afford it, could be a bird. But then there was also the sin offering, which was by a bird. Now, the burnt offering made atonement not for her sin, Because again, childbearing was not a sin per se. But it made atonement for her uncleanness. Atonement, you see, can, can mean either 
covering, the covering of something, or the washing away of something. And so her uncleanness was washed away. That was the first offering, the burnt offering. But the second offering, in your translations, it may say sin offering, though it would be better translated purification offering, because again, childbirth was not a sin in itself. But purification offerings could be made for sin or for ritual uncleanness, such as a case like this. And here's what's important about this Second offering. And pay attention here. The purification offering was not for the purification of the woman from her uncleanness. That was handled in the burnt offering. The purification offering was to purify the dwelling place of God. We learned this back in chapters 4 and 5 on the purification offering. It was to purify the dwelling place of God and specifically the altar in that dwelling place. You see, the ritual uncleanness of the flow of blood had brought impurity to the sanctuary. Uncleanness in the land made the tabernacle in that land impure. And so it needed to be purified. Again, uncleanness was not necessarily a sin in itself, but it did symbolize sin. And the point of all this was to teach Israel, the point here specifically with the purification offering, was to teach Israel that sin spreads. Sin is a contagion. In speaking... A little more directly to that notion, I want to begin to close down this morning by discussing three ways that sin spreads. See, first, we see from the very first sin in history that it indeed spreads. Adam was the covenant representative of all of mankind. And when he sinned, we sinned in him and fell with him. His sin was our sin because he was our representative in that first covenant. An easy way to remember it. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. His sin is credited to us and we fell with him. Therefore, we have what we call original sin, the doctrine of original sin. And this simply means that at our origin, that is, at our conception, we are sinners, even before we have committed a sin. And so this is one way in which Scripture teaches that sin spreads. It is spread from Adam to all who, are, who descend from him by ordinary generation. But second, sin spreads all throughout each individual person. It invades 
every part of man. All of our faculties have been affected by sin. Our minds, our wills, our hearts. Every part of us has been affected by sin. It spreads throughout the whole person. And we call this doctrine the doctrine of total depravity. Which simply means that the totality of man has been affected by sin. It does not mean that man is is as evil as he could possibly be. No, God restrains sin to a degree within man. So that he doesn't act as evil as he otherwise could. It simply means that sin spreads throughout the whole man. There's no part of us that is not affected by sin. Now, considering the spread of sin in these first two ways, we might ask, how can man draw near to God in the heavenly tabernacle? We are sinful From conception, original sin. And sin has invaded all of our faculties. Total depravity. Therefore, we are unclean sinners. And how can we enter the holy realm of heaven and draw near a thrice holy God? And the answer is, on our own, we cannot. We need a sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins. Therefore, we must believe on Christ, the Lamb of God, whose shed blood washes our sins away. There's the beauty, the amazement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That his shed blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, thirdly and finally, sin spreads in the sense that it promotes more sin. Now, this is important because it addresses our way of living after we come to Christ. We're all depraved at our conception. We're all sinners. And so we need Christ. We need to trust in Him. We need to come to Him to be saved. But once saved... We're still going to battle with sin. Our sins are forgiven in Christ, but we still wrestle with sin for the rest of our lives. And scripture commands us to put to death by the spirit the sin that is still alive in us. We cannot leave sin unchecked in us because sin promotes sin. Let me give you. Just a couple of examples. You see, when we choose to sin, that one sin is never enough, is it? We want more of it. Oftentimes we want to delve into that sin deeper than we had before. Why is that? Well, the reason is because sin is really an attempt... To transcend above the law of God. Well, who is actually above the law? Only God himself. And so when we sin, we are really trying to become a law 
unto ourselves. We are trying to make ourselves out to be God. We want to be the one who makes the rules rather than someone who sits under the law that God has given us. And so in a sense, we sin in order to trick ourselves into believing that we are gods ourselves. And for a few moments, it works. But after a while, the truth begins to set back in. And so you have to do it again and again and again and deeper and deeper and deeper to keep that feeling that you're your own God, that you rule over yourself. And ultimately, what you're doing is you're looking for satisfaction in yourself or in something that is created rather than in the creator. And that's called sin. You see, the sin itself deceives you. It says it will satisfy you. And so it promotes itself. And it promises you life. But in reality, its wages are death. It promises what it cannot give. And so it says here, you just need a little more. Keep taking, keep participating. And it drags you down into death. Now, this can't happen for a true believer. He cannot truly fall away. But it has happened to many who claimed to be. And who believed to be that a Christian or a true follower of Christ. But true Christians never fall away because sin is no longer their master. Christ is their master. True Christians walk in faith and repentance. And so their life is defined by steadily putting to death by the power of the Spirit. The sin that remains in them. And so we see in this way that sin spreads from an individual perspective. It will promote itself. And we have to continue to walk in faith and repentance. Repenting of our sins. But another example of how sin spreads can be seen from a community perspective. I just spoke about the individual. But also in a community perspective. Perspective. You see, sin spreads from person to person, so to speak. And this is seen in the clean and unclean laws by the fact that if someone touches an unclean thing or touches an unclean person, then they too become unclean. See, sin is a contagion. And there's truth to the fact that sin is more provocative in numbers. Augustine, in the 5th century, tells a story in his book, The Confessions, about a man named Olypius, who developed a, a sinful infatuation with gladiatorial sports. In other words, in watching others die in the sports arena. And Augustine mentions that Olypius didn't even want to go to the games. But his friends talked him into it. And Augustine writes in it, and just quote from him. He writes so beautifully. But he says, 
that Olypius said to them, If you drag my body to that place and sit me down there, do not imagine you can turn my mind and my eyes to those spectacles. I shall be as one not there. And so I shall overcome both you and the games. When they arrived, Augustine writes, and had found seats where they could, the entire place seethed with the most monstrous delight in the cruelty. He kept his eyes shut and forbade his mind to think about such fearful evils. Would that he had blocked his ears as well. A great roar from the entire crowd struck him with such vehemence that he was overcome by curiosity. Supposing himself strong enough to despise whatever he saw and to conquer it, he opened his eyes. He was struck in the soul by a wound graver than the gladiator in his body whose fall had caused the roar. As soon as he saw the blood, he at once drank in savagery and did not turn away. His eyes were riveted. He imbibed madness. Without any awareness of what was happening to him, he found delight in the murderous contest and was inebriated by bloodthirsty pleasure. Now listen, Augustine concludes, he was not now the person who had come in, but just one of the crowd which he had joined and a true member of the group which had brought him. Do you see the way that Augustine draws out the way that sin is more enticing in numbers? The sin of the crowd and of his friends tempted him, and so in this way spread to him. He opened his eyes and he got a taste of sin, and by the time he left the arena, he was just like the crowd. And just like the group that had taken him. You see, it's no wonder why the Bible in all its wisdom tells us that we ought not be unequally yoked. When we surround ourselves with those who don't put Christ first, how easily can we be overcome by the sins of the crowd that we're in. The group with whom we spend our time. And so listen, beloved, the unclean laws were teaching Israel about sin. They teach us about sin. I think two main things we have seen here. Is that first, they're teaching us to stay away from sin. It is a contagion and its effect is misery and death. But secondly, it teaches that only sacrificial blood purifies from sin. And thus it points to salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. To him be all praise and glory 
now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our most glorious God, we are grateful You did not leave us to ourselves. For you sent your son into the world to cleanse us from our sins. So that we might be whole and complete. And have life in abundance with you in heaven. And Lord, we are thankful that once saving us, you don't then leave us to ourselves to work the rest of our salvation out. For even then we could not continue, but yet you cause us to persevere by the power of your Spirit who indwells us, who sanctifies us, who causes us more and more to hate our sin and to love righteousness. We thank you that you, O God, indeed do change us and do Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. May that be our aim, to be conformed to his image, all to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.